Isaiah, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her season of hardship is over, that her sin is always forgiven, and that she has received from the Lord's hand a degree of blessing far beyond whatever she could earn or deserve. An insistent voice, the prophet claims, is calling out, saying, In your wilderness prepare a way for God, a highway in the desert for God to walk. Do this and watch how every valley will be raised up and every mountain made low, all the rough ground made level, and every rugged place made easy. And you, you who bring good news to Zion, go up to a high mountain to deliver it. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice in a shout. Don't be shy. Say to all the towns of Judah, here is your God. See your God's power and great strength and how it comes with goodness and light. See your God tend his flock like a shepherd. Gather the lambs in arm. Carry them close to heart. Watch how gently God leads those with young ones. All over the world today, Christian people are reading this text together as we open up this first Sunday of Advent we do it with these same words across the globe listening to the prophet Isaiah from the 6th century before Christ so think about that for a moment words from a prophet written 2600 years ago written by people who were winding up an exile, an extended exile in the nation of Babylon. Words of hope written to people who were in deep trouble. Words that still resonate today. Words that still awaken life for people across the globe. Now some who read these words together today will be living in the kind of political and economic and social freedom that we do. And they will read Isaiah's words and will find in them hope. Others will read these words in situations more like the context in which they were written. Situations of oppression and difficulty, of want and of longing. Some who read these words today will have to do so in secret because they live under threat of autocratic rule. Others will be facing economic want when they read these words, lacking in the very basics of life, food and clean water and shelter, safety from war, safety from danger. And they too will find hope in Isaiah's words. Because that's what Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about hope. And hope is life. It is such a deep part of us that it resonates way down in the human soul. And when hope awakens, it alters us. 
When hope awakens, it converts us. When hope awakens, it changes us. So all over the globe today, people are going to be changed as they reflect on Isaiah's words. All over the globe today, hope will be awakened within people. They will be converted to a new way of seeing, changed to a new posture in living. And I pray that that will be so with us, that these words will alter our souls as well. And so I want to begin looking at this text with a little bit of background. The book of Isaiah fits into a genre of scripture literature, and that genre are called the prophetic writings. There's the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then the minor prophets, all those little tiny books near the back. And the book of Isaiah fits into this genre, and it itself is broken into three sections, written by three different authors over three different time spans in three different national contexts. The first uh, section, chapters, I think it's chapters 1 through 39, was written in the 8th century before Christ, 200 years before our text. And at that time, Israel was on top. They were doing great. It was a safe time. It was a secure time. Their borders were secure, even enlarging and expanding the national borders. Fat, sassy, and complacent. This would be a good way to describe the people of Israel during the time that this first Isaiah was writing. If you're interested, biblical scholars call this author proto-Isaiah. I don't know why. But in the 8th century... His tone was one of warning to a group of people who were fat, sassy, and complacent. He was saying, hey, people, you're resting on your laurels. You're letting things go that you shouldn't be letting go. You use God's promise to Isaiah like it's a get out of jail, or God's promise to Abraham like it's a get out of jail free card. And it just isn't that way. You think because God made some kind of a promise to the heart of Abraham that somehow we are guaranteed a certain outcome. You think that somehow we are assured a certain way things will go and it isn't that way because along with this promise to Abraham, our father, there comes a set of responsibilities a set of obligations. There is a way that we are to live and we are not living that way. We must care for the poor because that is part and parcel of the ancient wisdom. We must care for justice. That is part of the process. Especially we must be looking out for the vulnerable. We have to honor the ancient wisdom We have to live our lives before God and live our lives uprightly. We can't rest on the promise made to Abraham, our father. And we haven't been doing that very well in these fat and sassy days, first Isaiah says. Now that takes you all the way through chapter 39, and if you read through those sections, you will hear a lot of that kind of talk. But our text today begins with 2nd Isaiah, who starts and goes from 39. I can't remember how many chapters there are after that. 
And in the intervening 200 years since those warnings were issued, everything that first Isaiah said would happen has happened. Babylon has been attacked. Babylon has attacked Israel and has destroyed Jerusalem. That happened in 586 B.C. What had happened is by not honoring the ancient ways, the people of Israel had weakened themselves. They had weakened their community by not focusing on it. They had weakened their souls by not following the ancient ways. They had made themselves vulnerable to attack, and the Babylonians took them up on their offer. So they ransacked Jerusalem. They took all their leaders to Babylon for re-education, tore down the walls of their cities. And this is the context in which chapter 40 is written. And the tone here for 2nd Isaiah is markedly different than 1st Isaiah. He doesn't issue warnings, 2nd Isaiah doesn't. He issues comfort to a people who did not heed the warning. It is written to a group of people whose actions have broken them whose drifting away from the ancient ways has left them weakened and therefore beaten and demoralized. The focus of 2nd Isaiah is to share the pain of a people who have been broken. You might remember the psalm that says, By the waters of Babylon we lay down and wept for thee, Zion. This was written during this time. It was written by a contemporary of 2nd Isaiah. So he shares their pain, and a great deal of what you'll read in 2nd Isaiah is lament, sharing the hurt. But also, Isaiah writes of hope and promise in the midst of very, very difficult times. Hope that lives could be restored. Hope that a society could be restored, that a community could be restored, that homes could be restored. But more even than that, 2nd Isaiah holds out the hope that the experience of God within our souls could be restored. Because the people of Israel felt that when they experienced hardship, it was the punishment of God And when they were obedient and they experienced good things, they were experiencing the blessing of God. And so going through this very, very difficult time, they felt abandoned by God. And 2nd Isaiah holds out the promise of saying it's not that way. You don't earn the experience of God and you don't lose the experience of God. You simply awaken to what is. So the experience of God, 2nd Isaiah says, is a precursor to society being restored. As your experience of God is awakened, he is saying, as you begin to walk again in the ancient ways of wisdom, the ancient call for, of, for concern and care for the other, as that is restored, you will inevitably begin to see your strength restored. And eventually you will see your land and your lives restored as well. This is what 2nd Isaiah says. This is the, the focal point. And this text is the beginning, opening few paragraphs of this message. 
to a people whose leaders have been whisked off for indoctrination, to a people who are languishing with broken walls and broken hopes, overseen by foreign overlords. In this context, Isaiah speaks of a hope that always is. Now, that word prophecy that defines this genre of literature in which Isaiah writes is one of the three or four major genres of the Hebrew Scriptures. And we call these books prophetic writings, and we call the authors prophets. That's not a word that we use very much anymore. We tend to, because of misuse, misunderstand what it means. We've all heard the word before, but because it isn't in everyday use, it's not something that we have very clearly defined in our minds. We tend, when we hear the word prophet, to think of somebody dressed up in an animal skin going around and predicting the future. We think of Nostradamus or some such thing like that. But that isn't what prophets were then. And if we still use the word today, it wouldn't be what prophets are doing today. Because prophets are prophesying today. We just call it something very different. Prophets are seers. They see. They see what everyone else tends to miss. When Isaiah wrote of hope in the middle of suffering, he was seeing something that nobody else was seeing. When he spoke of a faithful God, when people were living with broken walls and foreign indoctrination, he was seeing something that nobody else was seeing. That's what prophets do. They see. But because the word has fallen into misuse and because we don't think very clearly about the function that it is describing, we've tended to reduce that whole uh, concept of prophesying as seeing down to one little tiny thing, and that is predicting the future. We tend to think of prophecy as predicting the future. If you go to the grocery store this month, and if the National Enquirer is still out and about, I don't know if it is or not, you will go through the checkout line, and there will be a psychic who's predicting 10 things for 2013. And here they are. You can count on these 10 things happening. And that's what we think of as prophesying, saying this thing will happen in some time in the future. So, because we've come to think of prophecy that way, it colors how we read the ancient texts. It colors how we weigh the words. And what we tend to do is we tend to overweigh the predicting the future part, and we tend to underweigh the seeing what others don't see part. But, in fact, predicting the future is a very small part of what prophecy is. But what has happened is that's become the exclusive domain of prophesying. But because that's the way that we think, we tend to use that to interpret texts like this. And so we Christians have tended to interpret this passage and many others as though Isaiah was predicting something that would happen in the future. So when the text speaks of a voice calling in the wilderness... We have tended to this, think of this passage as Isaiah predicting a time in the future when John the Baptist would wander through the wilderness saying, prepare a way for the Lord and would be predicting the coming of Jesus. So, so that what Isaiah was doing was predicting this moment in the future. And if you ever saw the musical Godspell, you've heard the song of that 
interpretation of Isaiah. When we hear uh, the prophet Isaiah saying that God's power will come, but it will be a gentle power. It will advent. It will arrive. When we hear that, we tend to think that it is saying there is a power that is born of gentleness and love. There is a power that carries the lamb close to heart. There is a power that gently leads those who are with young. And when we hear that, we hear Isaiah predicting the time when Jesus would come and be the good shepherd. And hearing the text that way, we make some internal and we make some unspoken assumptions. And it goes something like this. Isaiah, as a prophet, had access to future knowledge that other people didn't have. And consequently, he looked into the future, another 600 years, and he said, a day of brightness is coming. A day of hope is coming. You can count on the fact that 600 years from now, something good will happen to you. And after that moment of brightness, and after that moment of seeing, the people of Israel had to, after hearing that, descend back into darkness back into hopelessness, and they had to wait. And they had to wait 600 more years. They had to wait for Jesus. Now, in a sense, Isaiah's words did predict Jesus, because Isaiah's Isaiah's words were saying, the nature of the divine strength is gentle. And sure enough, Jesus shows up demonstrating divine strength that is gentle. Isaiah says the nature of God's love is tender. And sure enough, Jesus shows up later and demonstrates the same, that the nature of God's love is tender. But rather than seeing that in a reduced understanding of prophecy as predictive, if we understand prophets see, Isaiah saw what Jesus also saw. They both saw something about the nature of the divine. When we diminish the seeing part of prophecy, we don't realize that what prophets are doing is helping us understand the very nature of the reality that we don't tend to see. We diminish that prophets sense the way that the divine works. They sense the divine deeply. They intuit the nature of divine life, and then they tell us what they see. Well, this has been happening for some time. A long, long time ago, other Hebrew prophets spoke of things that we think of as the exclusive insights of the Christian faith. The ancient Hebrew prophets spoke of grace being the nature of God. Mercy being the nature of God. Forgiveness being the very nature of God. And we thought those were things that we only understood because we understood Jesus. A long time before the day of Pentecost, Hebrew prophets were speaking of the indwelling reality of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God lives within you. And these are things that Christians came to believe was exclusively their understanding because we experienced the day of Pentecost when that was opened to us and revealed to us. But seers see. And it doesn't matter if they're seeing 800 years before Christ, if they're seeing at the time of Christ, or seeing 800 years after Christ, seers see. It's what they do. 
What they see, they tell to the rest of us. And so Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah the seer, was telling the people of Israel the way things are, the way divine life is. And this is what he said. Comfort. Comfort, my people. This is the voice of God to you. It's a voice of comfort. Yes, you are exiled. Yes, you are hurting. Yes, the walls have been broken down. Yes, your lives have been torn apart, ripped asunder. This is not the life you had in mind for your children. This is the painful life. It's not the one you planned for. But you can only see that. You only see the immediacy of what is before you. But I see something deeper. I see something realer, something more profound. And the hope that my seeing evokes puts these words in my mouth, comfort. Comfort. The divine word to you, the word of life to you is tender and it is encouraging and it is comforting. Speak gently to Israel, the divine word says. Tell them that the way they have framed their reality is wrong. God is not blessing you when you prosper and cursing you when you suffer. It is not that way. We don't experience divine punishment in our difficulties for wrongs that we do or wrongs that we think we did. This is just not the point. Forgiveness always is. It is just the nature of God. You can no more not have forgiveness than you cannot have the sun rise in the morning. It is the nature of the reality in which we live. The reality that exists beyond our awareness, the deeper reality from which everything comes, the soil from which divine life emerges is simply of forgiveness. And yes, there is a cost that accrues to us when we live unwisely. It costs us to ignore the ancient wisdom. And yes, you are paying the price of weakening yourselves. Yes, that is true. It is a time of anguish. It is a time of tears. When you ignore community cohesion, you make yourself an easy target for your enemies. And that did happen. And the consequences are painful. We ought not to ignore the ancient wisdom. It protects us when we heed it. But in your pain... Isaiah is saying, you've come to believe something about the nature of life and about the nature of the divine that just is not so. This is not divine punishment for your sin. This is simply what happens when we live in a broken world populated by people who live contrary to the ancient way. And in your pain, the heart of the divine towards you is tender. Because that is just the nature of the divine, it is love. And here in this painful, painful time in your life, you are not barred from the divine life. If you but see what I see, the prophet says, if you but hear what I hear, and throughout the scripture, that phrase comes back again and again. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to hear, it's all there. It's right there available to you. If you but have eyes that see and ears that hear. This is the way things are. 
And so the prophet says what he sees and what he hears. Out there in the wilderness, he says, in the place that you would not have thought to go, the place where you would have not thought to listen, maybe in the dark recesses of your own heart or that quiet voice way in the back of your mind, an inner voice that you have trained yourself to ignore speaks. Or maybe among the fringe crazies who speak of spiritual sight and of spiritual words, the one that you have trained yourself to disregard because they are out of touch, on the voice of the fringe, the voice of the wilderness, there is a whisper that speaks if you will but listen. And it speaks of a better path, a straight path, a path in which mountains have been dumped into valleys so that the divine can walk freely in your life. Walk the way of the Lord, the way of life and of truth and of love. And if you will walk that way, you can do it when your city walls stand and you can do it when your city walls are destroyed. You can walk that way when overlords rule your land and you can walk that way when you have your sovereignty back. But if you walk this way, if you open your eyes to this sight, you will see life grow and expand along predictable lines because divine life takes us to the ancient ways. And when you see the ancient ways and honor those things written by your ancestors, you will strengthen one another. And you will strengthen the whole community. You will care for the strong and the weak. You will protect the vulnerable. You will care for all, not just you and yours, because this is the divine way. And you will honor justice. And you will do your business justly. And you will live selflessly, caring equally for the whole as you do for the part. And if you do these things, if you strengthen your people, and if you strengthen your soul, and if you strengthen your community, you will strengthen your city, and your walls will eventually be rebuilt. And your leaders will eventually return. And you can become again a just and strong people because there is hope hope is just the nature of things there is a way to turn things around because the spirit of god indwells you because justice and rightness and forgiveness and mercy indwell you and so consequently there is always a way to turn things around there is always a way to restore what is broken there is always a way to redeem what has been lost and it is a painful process and it is a demanding process and it is a difficult process but it always is Redemption and grace and forgiveness and justice and courage and mercy and wisdom, all of these things that are the elements of the restorative process are always in you because the Spirit of God is within you. And it is always accessible to those who have eyes to see. And it is always accessible to those who have ears that can hear. Now there are in our community right now 
many of us who are in times of very profound struggle, facing some very, very difficult times. And if that is not you today, give it a little time. We all face challenging, difficult times. And for us, we can hear the word of the Lord. Hope simply is the nature of things. It exists within us, for the Spirit of God exists within us. Now the spiritual journey is a journey to awakening to that which already is, but which so easily gets buried beyond our access. And the things we encourage one another to take up here in our community, the contemplative practices, the communal practices, pursuing and learning the ancient truths, practicing the ancient disciplines, these are all about awakening to that deep and abiding spiritual reality within us. And one of those elements of reality is that hope simply is. It is in you. You might not access it. You might not be aware of it but it is in you. Now that can sound like an abstract concept. That can sound like some theologizing. But you know what the people of Israel were facing when they heard Second Isaiah speak these words. You know it because you experience it. This is not an abstract reality. You experience times when your walls threaten to fall. You experience times when what you assumed would protect you doesn't. You experience times when your resources can't be depended upon. You experience times when your people let you down, when your body betrays you. You experience times when the things that you depend upon most are taken from you, whisked away, and all that is left is harshness seeming to rule over your life. You know what those people experienced 600 years before Christ because you experience it too. And you can hear Isaiah's words along with them. You can hear Isaiah's words along with the millions across the globe who are hearing them today. And you can hear Isaiah's words along with the billions of people who have heard these words through the almost 3,000 years since they were spoken. And you can be awakened by one who has seen just like they can. One who has seen an interior light could convey to you the same interior light. One who has seen the interior hope and the interior truth could convey to you that same hope that same truth. And so Advent is less about learning something and more about awakening ourselves to experience something. And that's my invitation to you these weeks as we prepare to receive the coming of hope. As we focus on the spiritual reality of hope, it is my prayer Spirit of God, that we would awaken to that thread of light and to that thread of life that is ours. 
And may we, in the throes of the spiritual journey and of daily life that so often deconstructs the things that we build up to depend upon, in the throes of the spiritual journey and daily life that so often takes down those walls that we have built up for comfort and that we have built up for security and that we have come to depend upon for comfort and security. May we, while living this life that carries so many fears and so much tumult and so much upheaval, so many trials, may we find our bedrock in the hope that just is. May we hear the wisdom of those who have gone before us and be awakened to that which resides within us, the hope of restoration and redemption, the hope that what is broken can be restored, what is breached can be rebuilt. I pray that that would be our experience, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.